We'll see you again soon. Qui fondait ses les miens, un rire qui se perd sur sa bouche. Voilà le portrait sans retouche de l'homme auquel j'appartiens. Quand il me prend dans ses bras, il me parle tout bas. Je vois la vie en rose. Good afternoon. You've got Living Writers on WCBN, FM, Ann Arbor. I'm T. Hetzel. And today, I'm so happy to have with me today here in the studio, John Fulton in person, um, The Flounder and Other Stories, um, his latest book of fiction, out with Blackwater Press. John, thanks for coming down to the station today. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, It's a pleasure to be here. And it's it's not... um, it's not your first time down here at WCBN-FM, it Ann Arbor. <laughs> it is not. In, in what's, fact, what's uh, the story there? <laughs> so I uh, was in the MFA program at the University of Michigan uh, way back in 1995 to 1997. And um, after graduating, I took over this program for a couple of years and um, was the host. And I have to say, everything outside the building has changed, but not inside. It is amazing to revisit this place and to see the beautiful wreckage of it, really. Records, vinyl, stacks, um, the couches. They were all here when I was here. Uh, I would guess it was maybe 97 to 99, but I don't quote me on that. That was a long time ago. So what was it like? What was Living Writers like when you when you were the host then, John? And and who yeah. do you remember? Like, who I was your I, engineer? I, was and... close, I don't remember the engineer. I think he, he would change depending on the 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 week. I, I at first co-hosted with a poet. Paisley Rechtal, who's oh, yes. a close friend of mine. Oh, um, nice. Yeah. Friend of the show yeah. as well. She and I were uh, teaching at the university, and we did Sweetland Writing Center, and um, she would do one week and maybe take the poets, and I'd take the fiction writers the, the week after that, and um, we had a great time. Uh, I think about a year into that, she actually left. She took a teaching job in Wyoming, so... Oh, out west? Yeah, out west. Back into some of your old stomping grounds, Utah and Montana. And so I took over for for, uh, the next year, and um, it was was a pleasure. You know, we had had my mentor, Charles Baxter, on when his uh, now uh, sort of cult classic uh, work of criticism, Burning Down the House, came out. No way. So you so uh, you did you on. read it early, John too? Oh yes. I read that and was so excited to get Charlie in the studio. I remember I got a, a another friend from my cohort to come in and um interview him with us. And you know, that book has since become kind of a staple uh for fiction writers and the workshop and uh, just 
wonderful essays on defamiliarization. I still teach that. That's what I was just going to ask you because, um, you know what, let's, let's push pause for the moment and come back to this. We'll remember, everybody will remember we left off at Charlie Baxter and this, this history of you and living writers. But first, um, the book on the table with us today with Blackwater press, the flounder and other stories out this year. Um, going to read the short bio, uh, and then we'll go from there. John. Great. John Fulton is the author of three other books of fiction, The Animal Girl, which was longlisted for the Story Prize, Retribution, which won the Southern Review Fiction Prize, and the novel More Than Enough, a Barnes & Noble Discover Great New Writers selection. His short fiction has been awarded the Pushcart Prize, cited for distinction in the best American short stories, and been published in Zoetrope, The Sun, Plowshares, and the Missouri Review, among other venues. He lives with his family in Boston, where he directs the MFA program at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. Um, and it was, yeah, it's, it's lovely to talk with you today because one of the first things John and I, John had um, greetings from Eileen Pollock too. And so it's just, um, it's once you've been here at Michigan for a while, um, you miss folks, you know, who come. I don't know. Have you been at the University of Massachusetts, Boston for mm-hmm. a long time now? Yeah. Like, have you started to have that happen to yeah. you there as it, well? It will be 20 years this year that I've been there. So that's quite a, a while. That's but, a time. Mm, in fact, before that, the longest period I'd spent in any one place was here in Ann Arbor. I was here for eight years, uh, two years for the program, and then four years doing various things. Living, Living. and writing and teaching. Yeah, yeah. I, I wrote and published my first stories here. My first two books came out while I was in Ann Arbor. Um, my first book was a collection of stories and then the novel. And, um, you know, I got the job in Boston and that's what took me away. But it was a wonderful time, uh, great eight years. And as I said, really the longest time I'd been in one place. So, so does Michigan have um, Ann Arbor, but also Michigan itself have a place for you? Like yeah. somehow your formative writer self? Yeah. I mean, my second collection um, took place almost entirely in the Midwest, which surprised me. But I, I think that, you know, having lived for eight years here, it just got, I soaked it in. And uh, place is really important to me when I'm writing. I think I have to know it as it's got to be second nature. Um, I feel that way about setting too. If, um, you know, even if I'm in an unfamiliar building, I tend to think about a layout that I know because I've been in it before. So I just superimpose you overlay <laughs> superimpose what i know onto what i don't know and it helps um so yeah the midwest was, was so do you do that with that. writing too well um yeah i think i do um you know obviously for, for me it's important not to know too much about what i'm working on otherwise i'm not going to surprise myself and i'm not going to surprise my reader um, so I do have to start out, you know, with the with the unknown. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's like 
you know, the, the I, I love the metaphor of the trail of breadcrumbs in the forest. You start in the, out in the forest, you don't know where you are, and you, you know, you kind of, the material starts to tell you where you are. Mm -hmm. You write the pages, you produce the pages, you get lost, and then you start to see some signs of maybe where things are going. Um, so, yeah, I think that's... That's where, you know, you're not, you, you begin, you're not in your comfort zone, and then you start to find the material that excites you, and, and you follow feel, it. And feels right. And that's, that's right. That's coming together. And in, so in Michigan now, um, do you have a, in, in the end, at the back part of uh, yeah. the flounder, you have a, a writer's house yes, here. Yes, I do. Um, so every summer my family and I go to a family place. Actually, my wife's family have been going there for more than more than 100 years. So uh, she's a Michigander. She's not really, no, but her family <laughs> was from outside Chicago. And a lot of people go to, in this case, it's a, a place outside of Traverse City on the old Mission Peninsula. Beautiful little... So lucky. Yeah, beautiful little uh, peninsula right alongside the Leelanau Peninsula. I think that's my favorite part of Michigan. It's beautiful. Besides here in Detroit. I think that's, yeah. yeah. So, so you have a house, like a, you yeah. built a writer's studio or what? Yeah, she has one, I have one. And got hickory we, wood floors. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. Yeah, a cousin of hers, uh, my wife's, uh, and I put the floors in a couple years ago. Um, we have kids, so... Uh, it's a summer cottage. The walls are thin. And we figured out very quickly that there wasn't going to be much concentration and writing in that kind of environment. And so uh, we, we ordered some tiny houses and built a couple of writing studios in the woods on the bay, the west bay of uh, Lake Michigan, just outside of Traverse City. And spend, we spend um, six weeks, sometimes a little bit more every summer there. And we're just coming back, so ah, it feels it feels maybe nice then to return, like to have this place in Michigan that was also, I don't know, those those years that you spent here, one of the longest places you've lived, to still have some genuine connection to it still yeah, in absolutely. the place of it. Yeah. place is so important to us, isn't it? Mm -hmm. you, absolutely, yeah. And when, when we leave Boston and go into Traverse, it's it's just a culture shift a huge change so. and do you remember different parts of who you are as maybe even a person and a writer yeah i do i mean it's it's interesting the stories in the new book uh and this is some something i've known about myself as a writer for a while actually uh come from a time in my life 30 about 30 years ago that you know predated even the arrival my arrival here in ann arbor when i was uh, in my early and mid-20s, I had to get away from my home place, which is uh, the Inner Mountain West, um, Utah, Montana, Wyoming, where I grew up with my family. And, uh, you know, like a lot of writers I was reading at the time, they did the same thing. They went to Europe, so that's what I did. And, um, and, and you know, that, it was kind of a difficult time in my life. It was the early 90s, mid 90s, I was in my first serious relationship, which didn't turn out. But um, it was also a time when I was really first aware of what it meant to be American. Because of course, when you're abroad, 
you uh, you get to know what people think of your Americanness, and you feel it in a much more self-conscious way. And just after the Gulf War, it, it was, and so yeah, very it, much. Yeah, in fact, in fact, my father was in the Gulf War, and uh, when when we left for Europe, he was in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, um, as a uh, you know part of that. Yeah, the Gulf War. And uh, he was there much longer than we expected. But I remember feeling the guilt of being a, f a young man, free to go wherever I wanted to. And he had kind of got pulled off. He was in the National Guard at the time and had no choice. The, uh, you know, that was a war where they mobilized National Guard units everywhere. And off to Riyadh he went. And um, so I was very aware of that, you know. Uh, no blood for oil was the call at the time. And, um, and yeah, so I spent some years in Switzerland, and I lived in Berlin, Germany, and was learning German. And uh, all of that I had tried to write about even when I came here to Ann Arbor for my MFA, but it just didn't work out. Um, Not the right time. I don't know what it was, or... really. But it wasn't uh, until my family and I took a more recent sabbatical in France. We went to Bordeaux, France for a year, 2019-2020, um, which happened to coincide with the pandemic, of course. And I think um, it was actually mostly during lockdown, very strict lockdown in France. Um, you couldn't go outside without what they called an attestation, which was just uh, a piece of paper that you signed and dated and time-stamped. And the police would check it. You couldn't be out of the house for more than one, one hour during the day. And you had to put one of three reasons on the... Um, piece of paper shopping and, yeah and i got to know the local police because they really did shopping was one of them of course exercise was another but you couldn't go more than a kilometer away from your home so and and it was during that lockdown which was almost two months long complete lockdown that i started to write the story the first stories in the flounder or there are a few that predated that but most of them come from that and i think being locked down kind of made that old Europe of the 1990s come back. Return. And what were the first stories? Is it, Was the flounder one of the first ones? Or Yes, the flounder was one of the first ones. And now it occupies the very important last position yeah, of the book. Yeah. The, t the two stories that came first were Budapest, about a, a young American uh, exploring the Eastern Bloc um, right after the, the wall came down. And um, and then the flounder. Uh, oh, and then the about flounder. Okay. A couple of Americans, um, expats, uh, dealing with some marital issues, uh, living in Switzerland, but vacationing briefly in France. In France, voila. Yeah. <laughs> we'll take a short break and then we'll come back. Today on Living Writers, John Fulton is here. We've got his latest book, out with Blackwater Press, The Flounder and Other Stories. I'm T. Hetzel. We've got Jason behind the glass. We'll be back. <laughs>
Welcome back. If you're just tuning in, I'm so glad you did. Today on Living Writers, John Fulton is here, The Flounder and Other Story, the book on the table with us, um, fresh off the press this year from Blackwater Press. Um, John, thanks for choosing today's songs. <laughs> um, do you, yeah, tell us a little bit why, like the first two that we've had okay. a chance to hear. <laughs> I'd love to. Um, so that last one we we heard, um, Born to be Wild, uh, I, I was thinking of the opening story of the collection called Saved, which is um, about two kids um, on the verge of adolescence. They're 11, 12, and um, their, their families aren't doing so well for various reasons, Six, sickness, poverty. They, they live in a, a, a place, actually, I lived um, in um, the Mojave Desert in a part of California that nobody ever visits. Uh, it's very affordable. I lived in a little place called Hemet, California, which I don't name here, but that's where the story takes place. And uh, they meet an, an elderly woman, um, Mrs. Barry is her name, who um, is not what they expect. And they, they come from an extremely conservative religious background background. They're both fundamentalist Christians. They're scared of the rapture coming. And um, again, a little bit of my own experience there. Because um, you were raised as as well. Yeah, in the good old uh, rural Western tradition of uh, Bible belting conservative because fundamentalist sure. Christian, right? Oh, yeah. That's yeah. so, okay. Yeah. One, one reason I had to go to Europe. I would... I, I, yeah. I can. I think I can understand. Get a little distance from that. Yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah. I mean, so the, Mrs. Barry is not your typical older woman. Maybe I'll just read the first sentence of this, oh. just to give give you a sense of who she is. From Saved. Yeah. The lead story. Yeah. It was true what Mrs. Barry said. No one expected to see an old woman in a muscle car, a convertible Mustang with polished chrome bumpers a hood scoop, and an engine that ran with a throaty hum that we could feel in that soft place just below our stomachs as she pulled alongside us one day on our walk home from school. Hey there, she said. You want a ride? Not allowed to with strangers, Kelly said. She and I were friends. In fact, she was the only friend I'd made since my father had gotten sick and my family had had to move into the neighborhood a few months earlier. The old woman laughed. She wore deep red lipstick and eye makeup that made the edges of her eyes inky and accented the bones in each socket. But her laugh was loud and full of a warm energy that you wanted to be close to. I'm no stranger. I'm your neighbor, she said. I'm Mrs. Barry. I'd wondered about the quiet house next to ours and been vaguely aware that old people lived in it. There were a lot of old people in that town because it never snowed and it was cheap to live in, though not very nice, with abandoned houses on almost every street, their windows boarded up 
and their front yards turned back into desert. You should visit me sometime after school for a snack and some lemonade. You too like lemonade? Sure, I said. She laughed again, her voice loud and dry. Then I'll see you soon. So that's Mrs. Barry, and she's going to definitely broaden uh, these kids' uh, ideas of the world, which is pretty limited. But she's also going to share some of um, some of her own difficult life, and it's going to be a bit too much for them. They don't know it quite yet, but they get inside her house. Yeah, she literally brings yeah. them into it. Yeah. yeah. So, um, and of course, one of the, the, the ways she deals with her own isolation is bringing these kids in and they go out on joy rides in that car and um, it's kind of a substitute for the life of constraints and, um, and for her of sorrow. Mm-hmm. Um, so. and, and that was the, the reason you were thinking Born to be Wild because yep. that could be very well the soundtrack as she's heading out of town with the kids, breaking all <laughs> manner of... Yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, highway laws and on and on the way back driving the speed limit yeah strangely yeah yeah Yeah, she she breaks those laws and she also kind of breaks their kind of limited sense but absolute sense of uh universal laws religious laws and she tests their faith and i think that's what you know in a way i in the middle of writing this story i realized it was a kind of version of hansel and gretel um, and, it, you know, th- those those fairy tales were on my mind as I was writing all of these stories a little bit because I had been – one of the ways I learned German um, in the 90s was through uh, reading the Brothers the Grimm's Grimm. <laughs> fairy tales. I, I read the whole collection and there are many, many, many of them. I did too. I did too They're as a incredible. Kid. They're yeah, incredible. They're, they're yeah. very dangerous they, and dark. They are. And I hadn't realized that. Um, <laughs> I had never read them in English, not the real ones. I think what I had was the sanitized. Oh, so, so, you, were reading, yes. so you were reading it in German. Yeah, for the first time. So wonderful. Like as a, you know, yeah. 20-something-year-old. And um, I was just realizing how brutal and dark and strange <laughs> absolutely strange it's still brutal in yeah. english just so you yeah. know <laughs> yeah oh my goodness so uh you know that scene where hansel and gretel push the witch into the fire is awful um yeah so then, there, there's nothing like this but the kids do they break her a bit yeah they do and i you know mrs barry is is not a witch um she's lonely she's alone she's a bit misunderstood um she's she's benevolent but what she needs to share with them is more than they can really take and so they like hansel and gretel need to escape and um and that is is kind of one of the tensions in the story as as well as some of you know what she kind of tells them to think about in terms of their their faith which is you know she says well yeah this is this is maybe not the only way to see the world so yeah i'd always love that old that movie harold and maude right yes oh it's yeah it's one of my favorites um and i didn't realize this at the time of writing these stories but i did when i got the proofs back 
um, I'd always been interested in writing about adolescence, and I did write about adolescence a lot in my first collection in particular. The Animal Girl. Yeah, The, the Animal Girl and and uh, uh, the first collection, Retribution. Um, both of those really focused on adolescence, um, and I find that really rich territory just for the obvious reasons, right? Adolescents are great critics. They're smart. They're... Um, they're entering adulthood and they have the, the insight and the passion of childhood to, to sort of view the corruption that they're seeing. And they're great critics um, and they, they, they can't help themselves but be upset. So all of that makes them really wonderful for fiction, I think. But what I had been what I did in this story collection for the first time was write about the generations. There are a lot of younger people with older people. And why? You know, I don't I don't think I did that on purpose, but I do think that you know, I'm in my fifties now and I started to realize I'm probably rehearsing for it. I'm probably starting to think a little bit more, you know, what does it mean to look back on where you've been and to start to think about what that means and what you make of it. Uh, I don't think when I was young and I, you know, I don't want to generalize, but I think that when younger people uh, think of their lives, they're thinking about what is to come, who they're going to be. Um, and all the decisions they make are about the future. And, and, you know, you get into your fifties and you start to think about who you have been, what decisions you have made and you start to evaluate. And, um, yeah, so I a lot of the stories here involve the young and the old together, um, and I, I, you know, I did, I do think that there isn't a lot of fiction about the old that that really takes them seriously, the the complexities of the characters, and I think you know we're so often condescending to the, especially in the, the U.S. Right? I wonder yeah. if being in France. Um, I mean, not everyone, again, not not everyone, but our culture is more youth-focused and how to preserve this and yeah. how to lift that up. I wonder if with that time in France where you were obviously, it sound, well, not obviously, but it sounds like you were in a, a village and you, you had one kilometer yeah. of radius yeah. during COVID. And so, and maybe the culture that you were witnessing there was maybe there were more elderly people yeah. in your village and maybe you saw some intersection because it would have been the younger people in the village and the kind of the older people are in their 20s would be in the cities usually or so. Yeah. Well, I think one thing that's really true and anybody who goes and lives in, in most European cities and even mid to, mid mid-sized towns will notice that there are just a lot more old people out. And I, I, I at first I remember I saw this in Switzerland in my 20s and I remember thinking – why are there so many old people here? There are more old people in Switzerland, but that wasn't the case, there, right? Yeah. The case the the case was that they Why? have great public transportation. You don't have to drive. You can you can get from your doorstep to wherever you want to go um, with a you know a, a fairly good means uh, and reliable means of of transportation, and and that's why they're out. And that's true in most of Europe. So. Yes, in France, they're just much more integrated and much more a part of the world because, yeah, I and, mean. And so your stories are exploring 
why that can be a powerful thing because we're seeing these characters in relationship. Yeah. Like whether they're a neighbor, a grandfather. um, Yeah. I mean, uh, there's the the opening of one story. I I don't know if we have time for it right now, but I'd like to read what kind of shows that a bit. It's a story called Nocturne. Um, Maybe we should take a, a break and then when we come back, we could start with Nocturne. Um, Today on Living Writers, John Fulton is here, the flounder in other stories, his latest book. I'm T. Hetzel. We'll be right back. If you're just tuning in, glad you're here. I'm T. Hetzel, and you've got Living Writers. Today on the program, John Fulton is here, the flounder and other stories. Um, Before the break, we were talking about Nocturne, and then Jason was able to play it for us. Thank you. Great timing. (laughs) So, yeah, we were, and we were talking about the um, relationship of the generations and how, without really knowing I was doing it, I was writing about that. Um, and I read the proofs and I thought, wow, this is, I don't, I've never done this before. This is new material for me. Um, and also just to bring us back to those early 90 years, um, when I was in Europe, um, I, I didn't, I didn't write this story, um, until I was in France. So, um, that was 30 years later. So I think this, this, this story kind of covers all of that territory. So I'll read the opening paragraphs from it. It's called Nocturne. Daniel and Marion fought a lot, though their fights were difficult to carry out because they lived with an elderly woman, a widow, Frau Wirt. They knew that they were lucky to live affordably in their new city. It was Swiss, one of the banking centers of Europe, and housing was limited and very expensive. They'd found the old woman through a friend of a friend from someone at Marion's new workplace, which was, of course, a bank. Frau Wirt wore dark clothing and leather shoes with soft soles that looked like vanilla cake. You could barely hear her moving about the house. She could walk the length of the hall almost in silence. And though she seemed very old, the skin on her face loose, creased, and wrinkled, she was physically hardy, took daily walks, went to midday concerts, and played Chopin and Debussy on the baby grand piano in the sitting room. Her playing was beautiful and full of emotion. Of course, she would never play earlier than nine in the morning or past seven at night, and she always asked them first if it would disturb them, not disturbing others was, Daniel and Marion were coming to learn, very important in Switzerland. 
In Frau Wirth's apartment building, for instance, laundry and vacuuming could not be done past eight at night and never on Sundays. There were regulations, too, for when and where one put out the garbage and recycling. But it wasn't merely worry about disturbing Frau Wirth that made them determined to hide their fighting. It was the fact that she had an idea about who they were, an idea that she guarded and liked and that seemed to guarantee her happiness. And I'll stop there. Thanks, John. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, Frau Wehr was, in fact, uh, um, a part of uh, the first months uh, um, when we moved to Switzerland. Uh, we lived with her, and um, I'm sure she's gone now because she was very old then. And in fact, a lot of the old people I write about uh, were old people in my life from that period. And I don't have to worry about offending them because they're, they're just not here anymore. And uh, that's, it's, it's really kind of astonishing to um, think about how important they were really, that they just stuck around in my imagination and, and, and really obsessed me for that long through this time yeah. and something to call upon um not that not that you're anywhere near that age yet but that your imagination returns to because they're <laughs> models of a kind of something that meant something to you as a as a young person yeah i think the thing they were models of is is something you never thought would happen to you you would never arrive there that's, that's and true and so there was always some mystery uh there um and uh i did you know i mean there was it, it, it is interesting there is a kind of um ideal i think in the older generations in 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 Daniel and Marion's mind in the story Nocturne, the ideal is their relationship. Their relationship needs to be better because she, in some ways, in their mind, relies on it. Um, and, you know, that kind of plays itself out in the story as the story um, develops. And these, by the way, are the same characters in the, in the title story, right? Um, the we, Flounder. We see them later on yeah. then. I've since written about them more recently too. So I have, I've in fact a story, um, a new story about them just came out in the Missouri Review this summer. So they, they haven't left me alone. They have. So this is interesting, a connection to Charlie Baxter with, is it Saul and Patsy? Yeah, Saul, well? and Saul and Patsy yeah, they also <laughs> stuck with me. Those were his young married couple who would show up in multiple short stories and in fact in multiple short story collections of his too across collections yeah. which is now happening for you because now we've got yeah. the flounder and what you're working on next yeah right so that's that is kind of got a hold of me yeah, <laughs> yeah so do you feel like with the characters like fran viert and mrs barry that you have like more of a tenderness for them now that you're writing about the older older yeah, generations. I think so. Um, I mean, there there's a way in which I, I haven't really thought about this until now, but it does seem true that um, you know this material, these characters. I tried to write, get it on the page, get it into the form of fiction for so many decades, and it just 
you know, for whatever reason, material doesn't work. You put it away. You write something that does work, right? Um, it, it, I think part of why I had to get it into the fiction, I think, was to, in some ways, kind of witness to the importance of these people who are gone now, right? Put them on the page. They're in my art. That means something to me and I hope to other people as well. Um, I mean, another story like this does not take place in, in Europe. It's a story called Box of Watches. And, I, you know, maybe I'll read from the beginning of that because that one goes back even further. Um, in fact, I wrote an incomplete draft of this story after I graduated from the MFA program. It, it didn't quite work at the time. I couldn't quite figure out what was wrong. Um, but it involves my grandpa um, who lived to 93 and died when I was, uh, I don't know, a teenager. Uh, he used to own a pawn shop. He was a partner in a pawn shop uh, in the south side of Salt Lake City. And one of the great um, hi highlights of my weekends would be to go sit behind the counter with him on a Saturday. Um, in his pawn shop, which I did. You'd learn um, about the world. Oh, yes, definitely. Um, and uh, so, you know, I, I, I don't know why the story didn't work. It got really long and sprawling, but I took it out in 2018. I think that's when I took it out and I looked at it and I knew immediately what to do with it. And in, 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 a, in a day or two, I had the uh, finished story. What was it that you could see with the new eyes that you, because of time and some distance from it, what were you able to see? Well, I, I saw that, uh, so I had paired this elderly man with, um, his grandson who was, uh, a kind of outsider adult that just wasn't working. And I realized that his grandson wasn't an outsider, that his grandson actually was a caretaker who really wanted to be doing something else with his life. But because his grandfather was his caretaker, and that that sort of goes into the story, was his caretaker, his parent, he had to do his grandfather the favor in return. And of course, he, this guy is young, he should be in college, he should be doing other things. So... So it's it's that kind of situation, and that's what's that's what needed to change in the story, and what allowed me to sort of see the structure and see the, what was at stake. And, the younger characters, like yeah. motive, like what they yeah. what they were suffering Absolutely. or what they realized. Yeah, and I'll, I'll read from the opening just so you get a sense of what happens in this pawn shop. So box of watches, and I, you know. It's it's rare that I ever base a character on a real person and use that real person's name. But Frau Wirt was a real person. Frau Wirt was her name was Vera Wirt, so I kept it. And AJ was what we call my grandfather, and that's what he gets called here. So um, you know, for AJ, who uh, uh, yes. yeah, so uh, box of watches. That Friday afternoon in AAA Guns and Jewels, Sean's life flashed before his eyes, just as they said it would when you faced death. Though it wasn't his death, 
but his grandfather's that made the events of Sean's twenty-two years begin to reoccur as soon as he heard the old man shout, Go right ahead and shoot me, you little... And I can't say that word, I know. Sean was in the back room on the phone with a woman who was calling from Feed the Children. Most of the people who live on our planet are hungry, and most of those people are infants and children, she'd been saying, when Sean heard AJ shout these words, turned around and froze because of what he saw in the yellow, dirty electric light of the front room, the emaciated customer wielding a Brata 38, which had, as his grandfather knew even better than Sean did, one of the most unreliable hair triggers of any firearm. The slightest shiver could set this cheap, overbought street weapon off. But this didn't bother the old man in the least. He smiled right into the barrel, then laughed a large, open-mouthed laugh, just like George C. Scott and Patton, one of A.J.'s favorite movies ever, because the old man liked stories of contrary heroes who rose above history, who built rockets and shot themselves into space, who settled the American West, who killed Germans and bested Rommel, who did anything other than what A.J. had been doing for the last three years, which was to die slowly of old age and cancer, melanoma that had spread to his liver, his colon, and finally and most painfully to his bones, placing him not at all above history, but deeply and painfully inside it. And I'll stop there. So yeah, I mean, that's, that's, uh, that goes back to that pawn shop, uh, and uh, the Saturday afternoons that I'd spend there. And AJ used to tell me all these stories about getting robbed. <laughs> and, you know, so they did get robbed quite a bit. Um, but honestly, most of them, the vast majority of, of them, did not involve firearms. They were usually somebody playing a kind of trick. Um, the most common story that I got told was that somebody would come in knowing that they wanted to see a certain ring they'd been in before. They knew what the ring was. And they had one that looked very much like it. Oh, and no. so they would come in and they would... The old swaparoo. Yeah, and do the swaparoo. That was very common. And they always looked for it. They would, you know, look at the, the, the ring and then say something to distract them and then, you know, put that one in their pocket and put the fake one down. And my grandfather always used to say, you know, in his stories that he'd, he'd, he'd call his partner down and say, Lock the door. Call the cops. Because they're still yeah. inside. That's right. right. And then they'd say, all right, put the real ring back on the counter. <laughs> that, that was the end of that story. But, so it sounds like your grandfather was a, he was a, he was a character. He was, a, yeah, like, he, he was heroic was. And yeah. to you, too, growing yeah, up. You bet. Yeah. He, he lived through a couple of wars. He never went to one. He had flat feet and um, a few other things. He couldn't hear very well, even when he was a young man. Um, and he was second-generation German, so he grew up in St. Louis in a German-speaking family. And I remember he would speak German every once in a while, just break out in German. So it would have been, he wished he could go and fight against the Nazis sure, very I mean, that deeply. Was, that was one of those wars where everybody did, you know, it was yeah. a different kind but of But especially, war. I think, as a German-American, yeah. especially. Yeah, well, he would, he would tell me that, you know, he would get bullied and beat up. Because, of course, he was seen as his family was seen as the enemy. But, um, yeah, so he had some stories about that, for sure. So what is it like now that you are 
maybe more clearly connecting some of your own life, your own autobiography to the fiction, John, because maybe not doing it, I mean, we maybe subconsciously and what, <laughs> what we know and as we search for the unknown in the writing, there's always parts of what we know as well. But these are pieces of you that are more sort of open. Yeah, more absolutely. Clearly. And I, I'm not sure. Uh, you know, when I was a younger writer, I never self-consciously wrote stories that were autobiographical. I didn't... You know, the, the material came in mysterious ways. It still comes in mysterious ways. And, I, you know, the process hasn't changed that much. I, I mean, I, I'm not the first writer to talk about obsession and, you know, an idea, images, right? Yeah. Characters, they bother you. They, they get under your skin and you can't forget them. And you go to the desk and they keep coming up. <laughs> sometimes they work, sometimes they don't. Um, but I, I follow those obsessions. I think they're good. Um, and uh, if they keep coming to the work, even if they don't work out, I, 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 I give it a try and I see what happens, you know. And um, I think that as I've gotten older, a lot of, you know, again, talking about rather than looking forward, you're looking backward. And I think there is there is something to that. Um, so a lot of the material in these stories are, you know, is autobiographical. Um, it's a little absurd to say that because so much is made up and in a way I almost forget what I make up and what I don't. Um, but I didn't, I didn't really start working that way until maybe even this book. Um, and part of that I think was going back to France and just having that experience from my twenties, you know, coming back to me simply because of the structure and the, the way that, European life works with just the compression, the history, all of that coming back and um, sort of conjuring that old stuff up. It's uh, a gift then, because a window back into yeah. it. But I feel like the, the the major risk of autobiography is, of course, you may be interested in it, but you need to make your reader interested in it. It needs it needs to you know, fiction is is is. Ideally, art, it's got structure, it's got form, it's got shape. Um, life doesn't have that. You know, life life is, it can be a bit dull, right? It, 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 it doesn't necessarily have tension, and when it does, it's not the kind of tension we want. Well, uh, it seems shapeless. You, right. you don't know that there's going to be an an arc wherever it leaves you. <laughs> so that is definitely a challenge, I think. Uh, how do you how do you take that material? How do you shape it? How do you give it form? So with that awareness, John, how are you? So are you, it sounds like you're then more aware with it of it if you are pulling on images and memories. Yeah. To make sure that. Yeah, and some some of it really is for me a question of form, and poets think about form all the time, but fiction writers don't. And I, you know, when I teach fiction, I always go out of my way to show my students that there is form in fiction. It's not as formulaic. It's not something you know like the sonnet that has a huge tradition, but it's definitely there. And you know, one of the stories I've taught from decades now is uh, the brilliant. Um, War Story by Tim O'Brien, The Things They Carried, which is a great, great story to show students just how form 
can work and fiction and how expressive it can be. And, you know, for those of you that might not know the story, it's, it's, it's a story about uh, um, a troop of Vietnam, Viet, of U.S. soldiers in Vietnam, and it's told entirely through a list of the things that they carry. Um, objects, but also some things that, you know, are a little less um, concrete um, that have to do with the, the trauma and emotion of, of war. Um, but, you know, the guns, the ammunition, the helmets. The weight of it, right? literally. Yeah, the weight of but it. And the um, emotional and the psychological. Absolutely. And then, and then the weird stuff that they carried, too. Like, um, well, one soldier carries a a, a gram of uh, pot, and another carries his grandfather's hatchet. Right, he's a Native American, and and um, carries his quote unquote mistrust of the white man. His grandfather's mistrust of the white man. Yes, rightly so. <laughs> so, um, yeah, these these guys are carrying a lot. And that that story just brilliantly shows how something as simple as a list, right, which we think of as completely mundane tool that we use to remember things we we don't want to forget them when we go to the store or when we're christmas shopping can if you if you use it right um characterize create tension um drama uh interest um and all of those things so you know after years of teaching that i um i wrote one of my own list stories um about a character, I think, again, you know, a guy I was obsessed with, and this wasn't somebody I knew, not like AJ, who was actually one person, but I think amalgam of a couple uncles, <laughs> and uh, maybe an obsession with, I, I, uh, I, I love um, some of these difficult white male characters who aren't very popular anymore for good reasons, but like this, you know, uh, John Updike's uh, Rabbit Angstrom. In part because he brought my uncles back to me, and I, th- I felt like I could un- understand them. You know, this is in an age when the white man really felt like he deserved the world. And some, some of those guys weren't really happy when they didn't get what they wanted. And uh, so I, I thought it was fascinating that, you know, that Updike could write um, with such convincing humanity about a guy like that and I'd always been interested and I always have been interested in um, characters who are not you know the kind of people you might want to hang out with or spend time with but that by the time you get at the end of the narrative you're deeply you you understand them you see their humanity and I think that's a that's one of the things that fiction uh, the the really the magic of fiction is showing you the humanity of even difficult unlikable characters. So uh, this guy had kind of been in my mind for a long time. I didn't really know who he was, but I thought, well, a list. I knew he was. I, I and when I started putting the list together, I I realized, oh, this guy, this guy is acquisitive. He values things according to what he has and that kind of made the story come out for me it's a story called what kent boyd had so is the list apparent in the first line uh, absolutely because i almost feel like with keeping with um 
yeah. our, our our newly established tradition of this one sure. <laughs> one hour. <laughs> okay, let's see. Do I do I have time for the opening here? Yes. Okay. Yes, let's, let's. So this is called What Kent Boyd Had. And then, in his mid-forties, just as he started to feel slower in his limbs, the morning seeming to drag, the darkness seeming to fall sooner each day, even in the spring and summer months, Kent Boyd nonetheless convinced himself that he still had, among many other things, his youth. He had countless sunrises before him. He had a great deal more to expect and hope for, especially if his past was a predictor of his future. And since he was an optimist, he chose to believe it would be. He had two kids, Alice, 13, who had inherited her mother's fair complexion and curly red hair, a conflagration that blazed down half her back, and Ethan, 11, who got in Kent's oddly handsome bulldog face and his lumpy nose, a feature Kent had always regretted and often lied about, claiming he'd broken it, which was no longer an option now that his son carried around a small replica of it. He had a $2 million house in a nice neighborhood of Boston, a partnership in a small corporate law firm that he'd helped to found and that specialized in copyright and patent law. He had a decent, if weathered Subaru, a car he had chosen to, dr to drive, even though he could afford much better, because he wanted to set an example for his kids. He'd met enough class-conscious rich brats and didn't want to father two more. He had several summers and long vacations behind him dedicated to his obsession with golf. Rising at five every morning, heaving his clubs into the old Subaru, meeting friends to tee off at sunrise, slashing away at the bright little ball, its dot of light soaring above the vast green dunes, until late in the afternoon. In the game, he had two spectacular achievements, a 34-foot putt on the most difficult green with a severe back-to-front slope at St. Andrews in Scotland, birthplace of the sport and a birdie at Augusta. He had Bernard, his partner and closest friend who never let him forget his talent, celebrating it in the bar afterwards by lifting a glass and shouting, You've got balls, Boyd. You've got one hell of a stroke. And it was true. He had, or had had, one hell of a stroke until he gave up the game just like that, never called Kent Boyd predictable, and started running four mornings a week until he had two marathons, the Boston and the New York to his name, until the belly he'd had, and that his golf buddies still had, was gone. He had a new lease on life, a refinance mortgage on the house at just under 4%, though he could easily have paid the rest off in cash, a significant patent infringement victory, Gillette versus Bick, in which he'd shown the court to the tune of $700 million that Bick's revolutionary glide system was a thinly veiled ripoff of his client's six-glide pivot head. Is that Plain fair, he'd asked the court, flashing a fistful of disposable razors in the air. I don't think so. Nor, it turned out, did the jury. And he had, didn't everybody, some things he'd just as soon not have. Childhood memories, for instance, of growing up in Pueblo, Colorado, where his father worked at the Colorado Fuel and Iron Mill as long as he could stand to, which turned out to be about four years into Kent's life just in time for him to remember this man, strange, sepia-toned giant, arms akimbo, a large smile on his face that seemed remote from the cold, vacant eyes, an oversized laugh 
that could turn to a shout and a fist on the table in an instant. Thanks, John. So that, that was fun. So that was like a golf list. Even. Yeah, <laughs> it included a golf list. I, uh, I had to get to the point where he goes to Pe Pueblo because, you know, I don't know how many people have been to Pueblo, Colorado, but if you have been, you don't want to go back. Oh, okay. It's not very pleasant. <laughs> and, and that's where he grows up. So, yeah. Um, John, with this, there's lots of many, because of the list, the nature of um, having that as an inspiration for part of this producing this story, generating it at first. Um, I, I, there's long lines. And, and so it was such, um, it was such a funny moment when you punctuated part of that with, um, never call Kent Boyd predictable. Yeah. <laughs> like this very short, it, and it seems to work as a hinge there too, when it shifts into his running, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. And another, I mean, the, the cadence and diction and prose rhythms are really important to me. They they start to show me what is at the center, the core of the story. And uh, I mean, that's one of the things that um, I find in my process is very important is, you know, to follow the language. Follow the language. Yeah. That's it, a kind of mantra for you. Yeah, it, it, really, it? it really is. Yeah. I mean, you know, um, I mean, just to think back about a few of the stories I, I read the beginnings from uh, here, you know, you, you, I realized as soon as I found the opening lines to box of watches, for instance, um, that the, the rhythm of the prose suggested the violence in the story before I even knew it was there. It was like, okay, I knew it was going to be a hold up, but you know, there was there was exactly that in the lines and i i didn't what i didn't really know until i until i got those opening lines is that it was a it was going to be a chronicle story it was going to show us as this hold up was taking place the course of Sean's life with his grandfather together so that was going to be the structural challenge of the story so, yeah, I think when you read that first line, you can kind of sense that the gun is there before you see the gun. So um, in contrast to that, if you think about Nocturne, right, those those sentences are shorter, they're quieter, um, the rhythm is much more controlled. You can sense that this is a story about pent-up emotions, right? This, this couple who aren't able to kind of express what's going on with them because they have this woman there that um, that is you, you can't argue in front of, right? And they're also in this very controlled culture, right? You can hear Switzerland, I think, in the in that prose. And, and it was really important for me to find that rhythm, to read, find that cadence. Do you read it aloud to find it? Or I, is it something that you feel in the, yeah. the, like the interior voice? You know, I do, especially once I found it so that I, I can feel like the sentences have that music. You read it aloud. Yeah. 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 And certainly for, for Kent Boyd, you know, when I started that, that first sentence begins with and, and I, and it's one of, it's the only story I think I begin with. That's you know. a risk. Um, but I realized, you know, that in the cadence of the list was this thing that didn't end. It was a process like this guy's life. It didn't really, 
you, you know, you're not going to begin it at the beginning because that's <laughs> not the way he thinks, right? Right. Um, that's that's yeah. great. Thank you so much. I love yeah. that. Well, we'll we'll be we'll end the show with and. Okay. <laughs> Wonderful. Let's keep it going. Today yeah. on the program, John Fulton, his book of stories, The Flounder and Other Stories, out with Blackwater Press. I'm T. Hetzel. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time. You are tuned in to WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. You're listening to Drum Break. I'm your host, DJ Free Jazz. And I got a nice 30 minutes of intelligent drum and bass coming up for you. Stay tuned.